Good afternoon, everyone. As we were full into our second day of retreat, and usually around this time, we're, we've settled a little bit. We've gotten a little bit more seated and um, perhaps settled in our seat. And, uh, and yet the mind can still be a place of um, quite a bit of activity on, on the second day. So if that's happening for you, a lot of mental activity, a lot of thinking, planning, then that's a real appropriate place uh, uh, to still be experiencing on the second day. And yesterday, last night, um, Gil introduced this um, sutta, which has been a real exciting um, place of investigation for me for the past several months when he invited me to, you know, it's kind of like, let's play with this sutta together. And what I like about it is that it, it's about community, it's about conflict, and it's about loving kindness in a lot of ways. And because I'm a recovering rager, <laughs> wrote the book, got the t-shirt. Uh, and because I have such a love for community, and I feel we share that in common, to be invited to engage in this sutta was a very special invitation for me. So I'm glad to be here this evening, this week, to, to engage in this. And the first principle was around bodily acts of loving-kindness. And uh, this evening we'll be talking about verbal acts of loving-kindness, of um, friendliness. And um, looking at this idea of verbal activity both internally and externally, in public and in private, and what that means uh, and actually the medicine of engaging um, our thoughts and verbal actions in community can be a really powerful uh, way of polishing what I refer to often as the third jewel, the sangha. That conflict and being able to work through conflict within community can be a very healing um, and reverberating experience both in our own practice, but also in the service of community. So I want to play with it in that way. I want to look at it both in terms of this sutta, but also and especially our lives. So the sutta talks about uh, quarreling, brawling, deep in dispute, could not be convinced or convinced others could not be persuaded or to persuade others. Stabbing each other with verbal daggers. That's so vivid, you know. <laughs> but it's not too far off the mark because at a far extreme around verbal um, misconduct is war. And in a very subtle way, there's internal war towards our own um, relationship with our own thoughts and mind. So I'd like for us to dance in between those places. 
in the sutta, one of the monks was, was ba you know, banded from coming to the sangha because of this incident with the, with the little scooper, you know? So it's, uh, it's a question for us to think about, you know, where, where is it that we close other people out of our lives based on what we think and how we communicate? I did a Google search just looking at this whole issue of war and, and it says there are roughly 196 countries in the world. Of, of the past 3,400 years, humans have been entirely at peace for 268 of them out of 3,400 years. That's just 8% of recorded history. At least 108 million people were killed in wars in the 20th century. And estimates for the total number killed in wars throughout all of human history range from 150 million to 1 billion from wars. And war is an action, you know, one takes one's verbal righteousness or point of view and with a power base that gets extended into action. And we do this in gross and very subtle ways in our lives. So this, you know, this, this says there's, there's, we can look in our world right now and in our communities and see the tensions, the expression of verbal um, uh, upset through wars and, um, you know, what's happening with the planet right now. You know, there's a war happening with the planet in terms of how she's acting out from how she's been treated over the billions of years from any number of reasons. I often look at the planet as a person of color, you know, as a, as a body that's really been um, oppressed in some ways and the need to wake up around how we are in relationship with something that's different is really important to us. Political wars, wars and separation and verbal severing of relationships in our own sanghas. So it's not like it's something out there. So this is important for us to wake up to. And so I, I want to share this little, this brief little clip. It's a lot of putting together this screen over here just for a minute of activity. But I was reminded of this Star Trek. I don't know if anybody in here is Star Trekkies. Trekkies, as we used to call it. But there was this one scene that was so impressionable for me many, many years ago with Bill and Loki. I don't know if any of you remember this, but I'm going to introduce it a little bit. Bill is white on the left side of his face and black on the right side. And he's the commissioner for political tr traitors on the planet of Chiron. And he's charged with apprehending loci. And uh, th this search, by the way, has been going on for 50,000 years. Um, loci, Bill is charged 
that loci led a revolt of people who are black on the left side and white on the right side. And, um, and loci, who is a pilot from the planet Chiron, uh, is considered militant and combative. And he's um, being accused of stealing a shuttlecraft and creating a revolution towards the ruling order. And so Loki is, a claiming, is, is claiming political asylum on the Starfleet. But uh, Captain Kurt can't really help him because they don't have, he, he doesn't have political asylum there. Anyway, so this clip is an attempt to show you just how innocent the ignorance around our postures and views can be. And, um, and that it's not so far from what we typically see in our neighborhoods, in our own hearts, and in the world. So why don't you show that clip for us, Joe? Let's let's stop it. Yeah, it's okay. Are you blind, Commander Spock? Oh, look at me. Look at me. I don't know where it's at. I am black on the right side. Loki is white on the right side. All of his people are white on the right side. I once heard that on some of your planets, people believe they are descended from apes. All life forms evolved from the lower levels to the more. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. Let's take your time. My
it, it's okay. I think, I think the message has <laughs> been said a couple of times. I, I think if you could go back to, to um, your desk, your um, original folder, then, yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Thank you. Yeah, just just not bother. It wasn't a, it was an experiment. <laughs> this this answer. Thank you for your effort around that. Yeah. So this idea that uh, they're having this conversation with each other and um, it's just so clear to them that the per the the tribe with the with the face on the, that w that has the black on the left side is the ruling group and then the other one is has the the white on the right side and they're they're in this conflict and when you think about it they're mirror objects of the same thing and it just reminds me of something Carl Jung said that when an inner situation is not made conscious it appears outside of you as fate as fate and as the as the uh, story goes with on Chiron is by the time they fought themselves back to the planet everybody on the planet had been annihilated because this war had been going on for so long and they continued to fight the only two sapient life forms on a dead planet so when does it end when do we interrupt this pattern of, uh, of war so I invite you to just reflect for a moment on what quarrel or broil have you held on for eons? When you look into your own heart, what have you held on to? What disputes, what stabbing of daggers have you found yourself involved in as a recurring pattern, as a groove in your own heart-mind? we can usually come up with, you know, maybe one situation that's a recurring pattern. And at the end of this clip, Spock, who is the bodhisattva in the, in the uh, clip, he says, change is the essential process of all existence. And, and we hear about that in, in our teachings. So as we look at the verbal principle here of loving-kindness, what's helpful is to look at what gives rise to a verbal action. Look at that first. What is the um, uh, energy behind any verbal act that we are engaged in? Bhante Gunanatara, who's a Theravada monk up in Huntersville, in, in Virginia, it's not Huntersville, and he wrote the book uh, Mindfulness in Plain English and a few other books. I've studied with him and one of the things he says is don't watch your tongue, watch your thoughts because the tongue doesn't wag itself. <laughs> and I think that's really helpful for us to pay attention to that, that what's wagging the tongue is really what we need to understand better. 
So another sutta came to mind when I was looking at this teaching, it's, and it's the uh, um, Vipalasa Sutta, which deals with the dance between perception, thoughts, and view as, the under, as one of the underpinnings that then gives rise to what we say. So I, I want to walk through that a little bit, perception being the core one in this teaching. And perceptions, we all have them. And they're things that we see and we make sense out of. And the minute we lock into a percep- perception, sometimes we stop seeing anything else because we, we, we got it. We, we know what it is. So an example of this is I've been, uh, I teach quite a bit in Charlottesville, Virginia at the Insight community there. And one of the uh, yogis was driving me to the airport and we were stopped at this signal and the, the name of the, you know, I looked up and I saw the name of the street and I said, oh my gosh, how wonderful it is that you have a street named after Barack, you know, Barack Obama. I was just so excited, you know. And she looked at me and she was quiet for a minute and she says, we call that barracks in these parts. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I'm thinking, oh my God. So I had a perception of what this word was, you know, and and I was excited about, you know, what it was and it it wasn't that at all. You know, I actually (laughs) had a misspelling of that. So that was a real kind of um, turnaround, this... The Vipalasa Sutta is about the distortion of mind, how we kind of think we have it and we don't. And another uh, story is I, um, I have these wristbands that go with this work I've been doing on mindfulness of race. So I'm on the plane coming up here and this woman says, oh, what does that say? And she looked at it and she says, oh, yes. Um, Mindful of race. I did a race once for cancer. (laughs) I can see that you've had chemo, so (laughs) it's real clear. I'm so, you know, can I get one of those? (laughs) (laughs) So we all have our stories. And and, um, she was convinced of her, her perception. So it's not that we have just the perception, but what comes with the perception our thoughts and actually emotions. So when I saw the sign that I thought it was Barack, I had all these warm, positive feelings about that. That totally shifted when I heard it was barracks. I mean, <laughs> I have a different association or a different series of thoughts trail, trail that. So it's not just the perception, but it's the feeling tone and the the proliferation of thought, the story I had, the glorifying of, oh, what a great city this is. Maybe I'll even live here. They have a street. <laughs> you, know, you know, we get into that. Oh, my gosh, you know, and this is so great. And, oh, I love you. You know, you hear about this like in the Vipassana romance. You, you come on retreat and everybody's silent. You, you zero in. You perceive someone across the room. You fall in love with them. You don't even know their name. Before you know, you're having all these warm feelings. You've already gotten married and had, had the baby. You know, you don't even know the person yet. But this is that connect, the, the dance between thought and then story that then morphs into something. And it's a habit of mind that we all have, but it doesn't mean it's true. It just means it's, 
it's, it's, it's something we kind of leaning with. So with this Star Trek, uh, you know, you, you can see how it's just so absolutely clear, you know, that he's in a, of an inferior breed. I mean, clearly you can see that by looking at, you know, our faces. So our stories then morph um, immediately after we perceive something we associated with some past experience we've had. And that becomes our story. And it has emotion associated with it. And, um, and then that begins to shape a certain view that we have in the world. The distortion of view here of who's the superior race. And that's usually a collective experience where I'm not the only one. I actually have a, a community of people that can join me in this belief. And if we have some power, we can influence this belief, this view that we have. So an example of this uh, recently again for me is uh, my partner and I are, have made the decision to relocate to, um, to uh, Washington, D.C. by next year. And me being the one that's really organized, I'm already starting to get things in place. So there's working with all these contractors. And I have, um, you know, one of my edges or hindrances is aversion around working with contractors because <laughs> I immediately think I'm going to be had. Uh, now, immediately thinking I'm going to be had is an old groove in my life that has attached itself to support or contractors. So I know this part of me well. I mean, I could just see me gearing up the minute he came to the door for an estimate. There's no, no commitment yet, but I'm convinced I'm going to be had. And the conviction of that weaves a story and influences the relationship, my tone of voice, um, how I have to gear up to relate, and so on and so forth. I'm already disputing the charges before the estimate is made. <laughs> so we do these things in our lives. We have these fixed ways that we hold experience. And it's helpful to become conscious, to become conscious of what influences what we begin to say next. And can we catch it and clean ourselves of it with the dipper and then get on with our lives? So we don't see things as they are, but rather how they appear to us. And that's what's influencing us. So the question becomes, what influences our flight into this sense of distortion? And how do we interrupt it? How do we interrupt it through our practice? Through our practice of ideally kindness towards it. Shantideva, who's an eighth century, was an eighth century Indian Buddhist monk and scholar. I had a chance to, to uh, study with Pima Shroden for a couple of years on the way of the Bodhisattva. And Shanti, this is Shantideva's uh, writings. And he wrote something on vigilance that I think supports this topic that we have here. And it goes like this, when you feel the wish to walk about or even to express yourself in speech, first examine what is in your mind. When the urge arises in the mind, 
to feelings of desire or wrathful hate. Do not act. Be silent. Do not speak. And like a log of wood, be sure to stay. And when you want to put another down and cultivate advantage for yourself, and when the wish to gossip comes to you, it is then that like a log, you should stay. Impatience, indolence, faint-heartedness, and likewise arrogance, arrogant speech and rudeness. These things attachment to your side when these arise, it is then that, like a log, you should stay. Thus, examine yourself from every side. Notice harmful thoughts and every futile striving. Apply the remedies to keep a steady mind. So what I pulled from this is don't speak, don't act. Be silent like a log of wood. Learn to stay. And it reminded me of this cartoon that I saw on Facebook of two dogs sitting together and meditating. And one dog says to the other, to key to m the key to meditation is learning to stay. <laughs> Another way I heard this was, a wise man once said, nothing. So that's another way to be with that. So this doesn't mean that you don't defend yourself or you don't raise a, an issue or challenge something. This is not about repressing uh, something that needs to be said, but it, it makes sense that given our conditioning and the ways we've learned to defend ourselves, that we would at some point in the journey begin to question some of our habitual responses to things. And I think ideally to um, begin to just know ourselves enough to know our patterns and to put a, a texture of virtue around them. And retreats are good places for this because we get to slow down a bit and um, not be in the urgency of um, activity in our mind and, and we, we can put a little pause, a little space around some of the things we worry about, some of the things that grip our hearts and some of the ways we speak to ourselves internally. So I wanna explore a few things, strategies for us as we sit um, on the cushion. So the Buddha talk, talk, spoke of, uh, taught about wise speech. And wise speech, in, in these teachings, basically what's offered are four types of, uh, to avoid four types of harmful speech. And those four types are lies, words spoken with the, t <coughs> with the intent of misrepresenting the truth. We know that one. We can be kind of, we can really kind of shapeshift lies sometimes, you know, like, well, there's big lies and there's little lies, and the little lies should be okay, but, uh, you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's uh, divisive speech, speech that divides, 
spoken with the intent to create rifts between people. Harsh speech spoken with the intent of hurting another person's feelings. You know, getting your way, you know, pushing through. And the fourth one is idle chatter, which we tend to fast forward through. But this is spoken with no purposeful intent at all. It's just kind of like a, um, a laissez-faire uh, speech that's a bit unconscious with about its impact and maybe even unconscious of the needing to speak, to, to try to feel better, to kind of work with this fundamental um, dissatisfactoriness or groundlessness or um, formlessness that we are into if we're not filling up all the space, if we're not attaching or trying to connect or speak for the purpose of holding on to something. In the absence of that, we're left in a pretty open space. And idle spe- speech can, can be an attempt to, to, to avoid that feeling. So our mindfulness practice supports us in questioning and examining and holding that experience maybe a little, little bit more kindly. So I saw this thing on Facebook, and it says, uh, I've been putting a lot of thought into it, and I just don't think being an adult is going to work for me. (laughs) So I say that to say that we begin with deciding that there's a responsibility we're going to take to kind of focus in, lean into some of our habits habitual ways of uh, speaking to ourselves and speaking to each other. As we tend to act and speak out of a place of discomfort, but we're not always aware that that's what we're doing. And people have a way of provoking our unfinished business. So, there's there's one strategy I'd like to offer, which is a is which which is something we can do, it, which is about refraining or renouncing a habitual pattern around speech that you tend to have. Like I know I have. Uh, sometimes this can be uh, looking at some of the hindrances uh, because they're frequent flyers in our meditation practice. They come with regularity. Uh, not refraining from, you know, it's not like we can control that it comes up, but this refraining is about making an intention to shift our habitual relationship to it. Like if I know I have this habitual uh, gearing up, as Pema Shroden says, having ants in your armor. You've already got the weight of armor and then there's ants in there. <laughs> You know, you, when you know these things about yourself, you can decide to give it kind attention. You can, it can become a practice for you. It can become a teacher. So we can refrain from assumptions and the need for certain things to be, to, for, for, to have an outcome 
to be gripped and determined to have a certain outcome in a situation. We can decide we're not going to um, set ourselves up to have to be, ha for things to have to be a certain way, but that we, in, we, we renounce, like my renouncing of not assuming that um, I'm going to be had with contractors, for example, that I can make that renouncement and decide to give that more attention and to slow myself down and take care of the incremental accumulative uh, morphine or papancha that happens in those situations. And what I find when I've done this practice is every time I set an intention like that and practice not going there, not going with the habitual role of things, I'm creating some new pathways for myself, some new neural pathways. And, and that starts to shift my nervous system and allow me to rest a little bit more in my skin and not be thrown off my seat so much. And the other thing it does is that it allows a certain welcome of the habit to be present even though I'm deciding that I'm not re reacting to it in the same way. So you want to renounce just one thing, maybe during this week you can decide you're going to renounce one thing, one simple thing, so that like a log you can stay. So one, I want you to just reflect for a minute or two. What one thing can you renounce? Just for the retreat. What can you renounce? And this is not having aversion towards it. It's, it's to actually welcome it without a habitual response or lockdown. And this may be something that gets clearer as you go, but just coming up with that sense of intention, I think, can be helpful. Another practice that we can do in our sitting practice is compassionate self-reflection. And this is where we can turn our attention inward and pause long enough to notice um, what, what's happening when you meet a certain edge. Like, say, for instance, you have this renounce, you're renouncing something. And then when it arises in your practice, you're able to stay with it and ride the edges of it so that you can become a bit more intimate with this experience. You can know it as it rises and especially as it passes away. One of the ways this is helpful is with a practice called RAIN. Some of you may be familiar with RAIN, the acronym R-A-I-N. 
But in the sitting practice, and this is useful with intense emotions, which we'll talk a little bit more about tomorrow morning. But the R stands for recognizing what's here. Recognizing what's happening right now. What's happening? Am I meeting that edge? Am I um, in touch with aversion? Am I hating something? Where am I gripped? Are you open to recognizing what's happening? The A is for allowing. Allowing what's here to be here. And for me, this has been a practice of softening or saying yes to what's here. And it's like the gesture that Gil offered. It's like, a, it's like this. It's a welcome. A welcoming in of the experience you're having right in the moment. So it's allowing it to be right here. Allowing what is to be right here. And the I stands for investigation. Or what I like to refer to as an intimate investigation or exploration of, of what's present, of the intensity that's here, of the pain that's here, of the thought that's taking full, um, um, taking up a lot of space. So there's an intimate investigation of um, the perception, the thought, there's an inquiry here, is is this the real truth? Is this the real deal? What happens if I open wide enough to see, zoom in, zoom out on the experience? What happens if I'm not so zoomed in to the belief and thought? What am I leaving out of that equation? How do I know this experience intimately? How would I describe this without telling a story about it? What's happening in the body? that informs me that it's this thing that I'm calling it. And the N is non-identification. And this, this is working with not turning away and saying, that's not me, that's, I'm not going there kind of thing. But it's actually turning towards what's here and asking it what it needs. What's needed here? What could I offer this experience that would lean us in a direction of freedom or liberation? What would free up this um, constriction that I might bring? What, what medicine, what principle, what understanding, what wisdom, what kindness can I offer this experience that would be freeing? So this, this process of RAIN is really helpful when we stumble into an exper experience on the inside where we're, we might have a real fixation of thought or belief or, or mental morphine that's happening in the mind to pause and give it um, and hold it in, in a different, different light. This is what our practice teaches us. This is just a shorthand way of going there. Let's take a minute and let's do a little mini practice with this together.
And I invite you to just sit and I'll guide you through. Taking a moment to just rest in your seat and finding a posture that supports a sense of ease. Just taking a moment to reflect on a recent situation that you may have had. It could have been something at the retreat or something recent in your life where you felt really gripped. Where there might have been a lot of thinking or worry or trying to perfect something and just bring that situation to mind. Maybe not the biggest challenge in your life but something you can witness And bring the scenario to mind and as a full noticing. Notice what's happening. Now turning your attention into the body to See how the experience is felt on the inside. To the degree possible, just allowing yourself to experience this recollection. Staying connected to the body and the breath as you open to the felt sense of this recollection. Saying yes to the degree that you can. I'm here. I'm open to this. I'm welcome.
And then this sense of openness, now beginning to investigate where this experience is living in the body, How would you describe the grip of it? Is it a, is there a shape, a color, a taste? Is it a throbbing or tightness? Does it lean you towards sleepiness? or righteousness, or doubt. Taking a moment to notice and know the changing experience of bearing witness and investigating this experience. Notice how it changes. And And turning down any war tendencies you may have towards this experience. Any aversion to it. any holding on tight, tightly to it. You know, see the dance of this expression. And the non-identification is an acknowledgement that this is not personal, not permanent, not perfect. As you look at this situation, you might ask, what's needed here? What wisdom can I offer that would release the grip here? What's needed? And then see yourself making that offer. And very gently bringing your awareness now to the body sitting and breathing again.
and when you're ready, you can open your eyes. So over time, we can allow ourselves to slow it down and know the experience of activity in the mind. We can know it intimately. We can know we all of the thoughts that we have have roots in the body. So we can shift from the thoughts that are given rise to reinforcing perceptions and views. We can shift from the thinking about it, the story about it, to the experience that the body is having and offer a sense of uh, freedom to that contraction, that kind of tightness that goes with oftentimes verbal thinking. And over time, we start to have a different relationship with these patterns that we're very acquainted with and learn from them. Another strategy that we can use in looking at verbal acts of loving kindness is to look at our intention or to look at our attitude. In any given moment, what is your intention for speaking? What's, this is really important to pause with as a practice to question the impulse, the habit of speaking in this way. We might consider Why do you want to speak in an interaction with someone? Is your intention to connect? Is your intention wholesome? Unwholesome? Are your precepts at play the way you live your life? The beliefs that you have, you know, are are they in the forefront of your actions? Are you being honest and truthful? And when we're when we're genuinely honest and truthful, it kind of strengthens the qualities and helps us minimize regret. <laughs> you know, these things we do just impulsively. An open mouth doesn't have to be a mistake. It's one of the things I try to remind myself of. What impact is your speaking having? Do you notice that? The impact that it has, the reverberating effect that it has? And does it align with your intention? So examining your motives can override this kind of scattered, impulsive verbalizing that we do. And it's inevitable that you're going to blow it when you're speaking. Uh, Maybe you don't, but I find that there are times when uh, I'm verbalizing that I don't always get it right. And one of the practices I've uh, used from Thich Nhat Hanh's tradition is called um, Beginning Anew. Some of you may know of that practice. It's a sangha practice, a community practice. 
and it has two parts. It has flowering, flower watering, which is where you're sharing appreciation for someone. Just a habitual, you know, time each week where there's a sharing of appreciation for another person. And the second part is also sharing regret. And the sharing regret is where you own up to and acknowledge something that you may have done unskillfully in the relationship, in speech or in thought or in action. And you share how you've, you've been impacted by that or any reflections or insights you have um, as you own this up. Can you imagine being in a community where that's just a regular practice? Or even a practice in your own sitting meditation where you can speak to yourself in a way where you're acknowledging, watering the seeds of your own goodness and also um, noticing maybe that one thing that you renounced where you're, you kind of uh, went there and, but then you're able to come back and forgive yourself and to let it go and to rest in your own humility of being human. The wise one always asks for forgiveness first. So just imagine that kind of vulnerability in your own heart and the relief that it brings. You've probably been in situations where you've spoken a truth and you've owned something in your own experience and it's given your body a break, a release. And what I find is that there's more space for me to rest inside of this body. And I call that giving myself a break. And you know, when we resist saying, I'm sorry, it's a form of conceit. There's a, there's a, there's a righteousness in that kind of holding. And it's a subtle suffering that we actually have almost a, a high tolerance for in our society. So questioning our habits is really useful here. And another practice that I've had, this is especially with my partner, is having a good fight but, but, be, but holding hands throughout it. It changes things, you know, you, you know, you just can't, y there's something that happens there, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I'll just um, kind of summarize here a little bit that these are just a few strategies to play with in your practice on the cushion and also in your lives, in your spiritual communities, the idea of wise speech, renouncing one thing that affirms what you know about yourself to be true and recurring, you know, to interrupt that habit by making it an intention, by compassionate self-reflection, not being hard on yourself and hating what's happening and what's here, but a sense of compassionate reflection through the process of RAIN or through any other process that you find supportive for yourself. So 
so with steadiness and persistence we can see how the qualities that this sutta suggests around love and respect, harmony, kindness, peace and unity is possible. This sense of inner and private work and how that is impacted and our how that feeds a certain relational atmosphere in community that supports a sense of loving kindness. It starts on the inside. I heard this quote that says, and I can't remember where I got it, but this is how it reads. It is not our work to force someone's growth to our liking. It is the work of love to admire the beauty before you, to give people a sense of safety to unfold, to keep each other's company when drowning in anguish until the wave can balance out and our feelings can once again live in us. That's Sangha. That's working with the power of our verbal capacity in ways that acknowledge that we have impact. So don't watch your tongue. Watch your thoughts because the tongue doesn't wag itself. And don't speak, don't act. Be silent, do the inner work like a log of wood. Stay. So let's sit for a minute here. Thank you.